There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. All right, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Praise God for those good words. Uh, that is a perfect song to set up week five of our series, Cultivating the Christian Life. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning and bringing us into the presence of God. Um, we are looking at 12 rules for spiritual formation. Uh, last week, we got to the idolatrous roots of our problems. And today, we're on rule number four. And uh, I need to see, so I'm going to go back over here and get my glasses. Sorry for the costume change in the middle. Um, that's not going to go well for me in the middle of the, uh, of the sermon, though. Uh, rule number four, know who you are and whose you are. Uh, this rule is all about the topic of identity. All right, does Jesus affect your view of identity? That's the question today. And so if you have your workbooks, I got my workbook right here. If you haven't gotten one, we invite you to, again, contact the church office. We still have a few more. Uh, we're going to be on pages 62 and 63. Uh, don't be afraid, as always, to take some supplemental notes. In fact, somebody wants a workbook today. All right, uh, come over here. I'm giving away some for free today. There we go. All right. So 62 and 63, that's where we're going to be uh, this morning. Um, and uh, we're going to be thinking about identity. So as I was thinking about the topic of identity this week, I came across a really interesting story uh, a guy named, about a guy named Milton Lickman. Has anybody ever heard of Milton Lickman? Yeah, I did not either until this week. I don't know why you would have. Uh, but apparently in May 1989, New York Magazine published a feature story on him, and they gave him this title, A Man of a Thousand Faces. A Man of a Thousand Faces. See, he played over 3,000 roles in his career as an actor. And you've actually probably seen him without recognizing him, because for over 30 years, Lickman's primary claim to fame was appearing in commercials as a really famous historical figure. So, for example, he lit a cigar as Fidel Castro in a commercial for lighters. He sold cars as Albert Einstein for a Southern California car dealership. He promoted a Minnesota savings bank as Abraham Lincoln. He touted an Arizona department store as Robert E. Lee. In fact, for one bank commercial, he portrayed four different historical figures, all complaining about other banks that charge for checks. He helped pitch cereal as Alexander Hamilton, beer as Johann Sebastian Bach, Early mobile phones as Dracula, a cough syrup as Frankenstein. Among others, he did Babe Ruth, Gandhi, Mozart, Sherlock Holmes, Ebenezer Scrooge, John Wayne, Thomas Jefferson. On and on and on it went. In fact, in the interview, he was asked this question. He was asked how he was doing. And he replied, I'm alive, I'm well, and I'm living in someone else's face. 
Now, by the end of his career, he had reportedly played 3,372 historical notables, and he passed away at age 87 in 2014. But at the end of his life, he made a really interesting comment, and I want you to think about this today. His comment was, heaven for me is to lie in bed stark naked with no costume, living in my own face and not someone else's, and luxuriate in my own skin. Now, I think that's a pretty profound statement because this man spent his whole life portraying someone else, but he longed just to be himself and know who he was. Can you relate to that? But you're listening today, and you're probably not an actor, but we all play different roles in our life. Parent, employee, child, church member, committee member, student, American, brother, sister, cousin. I could go on and on and on. Sometimes you're trying to be something for someone else, and you've done all that hard work, but you haven't done the hard work to actually stop and look in the mirror and ask the most important question, who am I? Who am I? That's the identity question, and that's a question we all need to answer. Author Kathy Cook says this in her book, Five to Thrive. She says, uh, we all need to know who we are. It's a legitimate need wired into us by God. And it's a necessary component to growth in the Christian life. The problem is that too often we build our identity on someone else's expectations of us. And when we do that, we can easily create a thousand faces if we're not careful. How do you do that? Well, I I think the typical person uh, tries to build their identity on a few different areas. And so I brought some personal items with me today to help illustrate this. This this right here, which you can see on the screen, is a picture of my great-grandmother with my great-great-grandfather in Brooklyn, New York, because I learned a few years ago that my great-great-grandfather actually owned an ice cream parlor there, apparently the best ice cream parlor on the block. And then later on, my great-grandmother, she moved to New Jersey, we start, she started a family, and the rest is history. This was part of my family identity. We get identity from family, right? Uh, another area where we get our identity is our abilities, our abilities. When I was younger, I played baseball, and so I brought a baseball glove here today, which actually was my father's, and I've spoken about this before, but baseball was a big part of my uh, family growing up. So my abilities and my family kind of came together, and that formed a part of my identity, something I built it on. A third area could be interests, and so what I have here today, this is actually an award I, I won for, uh, for, uh, for, for a play that I did in high school uh, out at the Bucks County Playhouse, and uh, when I was younger, theater and performing in that was, was something very much that I built my identity on. It was who, what I, I was known for. And then the last thing I have right here is my, uh, my diploma from seminary, because uh, like many of you, I build a lot of my identity on my career in ministry. And uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not sure I'm not the only person that does that. And so when people ask you who you are, it's hard not to direct your answer to what you do for a living, for your work, because we invest so much time in that. All of these things represent pieces of our identity. Now, on pages 63 and 64 of your workbook, there's actually a fill-in-the-blank activity uh, to help you think this through. And so I really encourage you to do that in your uh, small groups or at some point this week. Because uh, po- the point I'm making is this. We're all going to answer the identity question. What we owe it to ourselves is that we should know how we're doing it and what the things are that we're using to answer it. Because often we find our identity in what we do, not simply in who we are. But when you look at Scripture, God defines our identity by just who we are first, and then the actions flow from that. 
So our memory verse for this week is 1 John 3, 1, which captures this truth really well. It says this, uh, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. If you've been around, that's a familiar verse. Have you meditated on that? Because John says, first and foremost, if you know Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. That's who you are. And then the way you live, it flows from that truth. But so often we find our identity in reverse by what we do rather than just who we are. Who are you? Now, to further answer that question, I want to take you to Paul's letter to the Ephesians today uh, because in many ways that whole letter is about identity, who we are in Christ. And Paul says very much our actions flow from a life that's been changed by grace. In fact, Ephesians can be broken down into two main sections. Uh, Chapters 1 to 3 really deal with the gospel story of how God saved us. And then chapters 4 to 6 offer us a challenge to live out that new identity we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 to chapter 5 verse 2 uh, specifically address this identity question. How do I find my identity? Well, Paul says in that that section of Scripture, three action steps I want to talk about today. First, you have to know the barriers. Uh, Second, you have to find the breakthrough. And then finally, you got to get in the body. Okay, so barriers, breakthrough, body. Three Bs today, right? All right. Uh, Before we dive in, uh, let me just, uh, I I asked some of the teens from the youth group to actually offer the Scripture reading today of Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 2. So uh, they did that on video. Let's just take a moment to listen to God's word before we begin. Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 2. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and, had, and have given themselves up to sensuality, gre- greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put and to put on the new self created after the likeliness of God and the true righteousness and holiness therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of, the, out of your mouths, but only such as, as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's God's word. Let's pray as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, your love and your grace, Lord. When we were dead, you made us alive. By your grace, Lord, you prepared good works for us to walk in, Lord. You gave us a new identity. You made a new humanity because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so today we ask that you would move on our hearts. Teach us who we are in you. Uncover the parts of our heart that we've been hiding from you, Lord. 
that you, Holy Spirit, may come and wash us clean and renew our minds. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so first, know the barriers. Now, one of the barriers to discovering our identity is, is this. The modern world pulls us in so many different directions. So when you ask the question, do you know who you are, answering that question requires a lot of hard work today. Why? Well, our, our cultural moment doesn't help because we've been enculturated into a world of what I'm simply going to call fractured identities. And in other words, we, as I said, we're pulled in so many different directions and so many complex ideas are thrown at us so fast that in reality, there's a lot of other people trying to answer that who am I question for us. So advertisers <clears throat> want, want us to identify with, with what? With their products, right? Politicians want to capture our attention. They want us to identify with their cause. Uh, celebrities want us to follow their page. It's exhausting, it leaves us fractured. Do you know back in the 1970s, you might remember this, there was only three television channels, and that was it, right? And, and so now there's like a hundred different streaming platforms with thousands of viewing options, and I say, just that little microcosm shows us, it's no wonder we're fractured. Some days it feels like we're living with a thousand faces. So to combat this, what we have to do is go back to the beginning. We have to focus on how we were created. Um, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, very famously, it makes clear that human beings are made in the image of God. Now, I did a whole sermon on this at the end of December, so I don't want to rehash that specific topic right now. Uh, what I'd like to do is jump ahead to Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, where the psalmist asks a pointed question of God. He simply says, what is man that you, God, are mindful of him? What is man that you care for him? Now, theologians have tried to answer that question, and if you turn to your workbooks on page 65, you're going to see an example of how this has been answered. Um, this is the, the kind of the, the chart they come up with. Human beings are both material and immaterial, they'll say. We are a complex dichotomy. It's called, the, the theological term is the constitution of humanity. Our material nature is our bodies, while the immaterial nature is what's inside, our soul, our conscience, our spirit. And the modern world only tries to focus on the physical nature of humans. But the reality is we are spiritual creatures who are longing for our creator, God. In fact, God says we are the pinnacle of creation. He has given us authority to rule the earth as his representatives. We are made in his image. That's who we are. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul reminds us of how Jesus has, has, has blessed us, right, with spiritual blessings. This is what we read in Ephesians 1, 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, in other words, because of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you're blessed beyond measure. He has undone the curse of the fall because of his work on the cross. But sin has not been eradicated from the world yet, and so we battle against it. And that remaining sin nature within us appeals to that physical part of who we are, what the Bible calls the flesh. And it creates a barrier to us knowing our true identity in Christ. So that tension between the physical and the spiritual is what Paul addresses in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. So he starts this way. He says, Now I say this, this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. 
Now, the first half of Ephesians, like I said before, uh, really kind of lays out the gospel story. So Paul tells believers, chapter one, you're blessed in Christ. Chapter two, you were dead, but God made you alive. Chapter two also, there was a barrier that I have removed and I've made a new humanity. And then chapter three, he says, you are part of a new family. You've been adopted. God is the head. Now, in chapter four, he's telling them to live according to that new identity in Christ. And you can see, though, in verse 17 to 19, there's this pull to go back to this former way of life. There's a pull towards the physical that keeps them from knowing their true identity. And your identity how you view your identity will impact how you live. So if you look at the phrase, no longer walk, you can see it highlighted there. That word walk has a Jewish background. It it characterizes features of everyday life. In other words, their daily lives were being affected by their beliefs. And then the word futility could be translated as meaningless, which in turn affected their thinking and lifestyle choices. It's kind of the same language that Paul uses in Romans, famously in Romans chapter 1. Now, why are they living like this? Look at verse 18. It says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. So this this is kind of a disturbing picture. Now, Paul is specifically saying here that that Gentiles who are not part of the Christian community are doing this. But we learned in verse 17 that the Christians are being pulled and, and trying to emulate these Gentiles. What are the Gentiles like? He says they're darkened in their understanding, which refers to a person's ability to make lifestyle choices. They are alienated from God because they're ignorant. Now, you might say, well, ignorance, that gets them off the hook because they don't know what they're doing. But Paul says in Romans 1 that God has revealed himself and people still chose, um, they still chose not to follow him. Their hearts were hard. And so the bottom line right here is this. These people right here don't want to know God, and by extension, they cannot know who they truly are. And Christians are being enticed by them. Now, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, you may may have heard of him, uh, once wrote and made this observation. He said, our true self is the self we are before God. Our true self is the self we are before God. And what he means by that, he grounds this in Genesis 17.1, God speaks to Abraham and tells them that so you need to, he says, you need to walk before me faithfully. And the, the idea is this. If you want to know somebody truly and rightly, you need to befriend them and you need to walk with them face to face. And so if you want to know who you are and you want to know God, you need to walk with him face to face. But in 4.18, we, we see the Gentiles, they're alienated from God, which means they don't know him. And by extension, then, like I said, they can't know themselves. And if Christians pursue that path, it now creates a major barrier to knowing your deep, true identity in Christ. So look at the end result, verse 19. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now the word callous, if you circle that in your Bible, it's, it's actually a really rare Greek word. It means to cease to feel pain. It's only used a couple times. And think about, just to illustrate it, just think about the calluses you develop on your hands if you lift weights or if you play the guitar. Those things are good because they keep you from feeling pain. You can play the guitar longer. But if your heart becomes callous, it's not soft and tender, and that can lead you in some pretty dark directions. And so in this context, it means that these people right here, they have no desire for God. They can't even be convicted. They can't know who they really are. And their actions proceed from that. So they're greedy, 
They're self-indulgent. All they want is impurity. More than that, that word greedy actually here means they have an insatiable desire for more of these actions. They want more of it. Now, if Kierkegaard is correct that our true self is the self we see before God, do you see how these verses actually create a barrier to knowing who you truly are in Christ? Because remember, Paul may be describing ungodly Gentiles, but it's the Christians who are being enticed by them, which is creating a barrier to discovering their their deep identity in Christ. So my question is, what are your barriers? Remember, there's many forces that are trying to get you on their side, advertisers, entertainment, politicians, even family at times. Those forces can create a false self within us where we base our identity on other people's expectations, And so our remaining sin pulls us in the direction of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 19, because we want to fit in. It creates a barrier to knowing ourselves rightly. Uh, James Smith offers a helpful illustration in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. And in the book, he notes that a transformation has taken place in what's expected of the typical ad executive today. So advertising executives uh, no longer are responsible just for design and for packaging and for promotion. The brand manager now asks them to create a, create a meaning system for people with which they can get identity and an understanding of the world. That's what the advertisements are trying to teach you. Advertising is asking us to induce devotion to their products, and they, they, they want to give us a sense of the transcendent. So companies started to ask the question, what makes people exhibit cult-like devotion? And they studied it, and they studied cults precisely in order to figure out how their brands could induce what they called a loyalty-beyond-reason mindset. And what the study revealed was this. People join brands for the same reason they join cults and religions, to belong and to make meaning. Now think about yourself. When you buy into a brand... Do you become an evangelist for it? Right? Sometimes we do, and that's because you feel like you belong to that brand. It solved a problem in your life. Other people need to know about it. Think about the products you buy. I'll give you a couple examples, um, and I'm just going to add them to the table. For, for a number of years, I have gotten my razors from a place called Dollar Shave Club. Some of you may buy your razors there as well. They have a whole host of products. I got wonderful razors. I got the shaved butter, which, by the way, is so much better than shaving cream. Uh, They even have deodorant. They have a whole host of bathroom products. I heard about this through word of mouth, and I thought it's so cool. I went and saw their advertisement. It was really funny, uh, and so I signed up because basically... Basically, I could get the razors shipped to my, to my house, and I could save a lot of money. What's, what's their slogan? Their slogan is, shave time, shave money. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to buy it, right? And so I'm telling other people, dude, you got to get it. The razors are great. You can save, save time, save money. They can have all kinds of bathroom products. I was part of the club, is my point, and I told others. Here's another example. I just recently got into um, Brooks Running Shoes. I don't know if anybody gets these, uh, but I don't know where these things have been my whole life because now I feel like I'm running on air. Oh, my! see, see what I'm doing to you right now? You want to buy them, right? It's, it's amazing, right? Uh, they're fabulous shoes. I tell others about them. Uh, I may even be, like I just said, an evangelist for them. That's what brands do. What's the tagline for Brooks? Run happy. Uh, who doesn't want that, right? You want to be part of the club. They make you feel like you're part of a larger story. What are your brands? That's my question. Do you find a piece of your identity in them? 
Because what happens is this. We cease being customers, and we start to identify as a form of disciples. We're members of the tribe, whatever tribe that may be. VW owners, right? Starbucks drinkers, Mac users. The advertisements of these products don't convey information about them. They tell stories. They picture worlds of meaning. They invite us to see ourselves within that brand. And the goal of this marketing, Smith writes, is to fill the, listen to this, to fill the empty places where non-commercial institutions like schools and churches might have once done the job. They amount to an invitation to a longed-for lifestyle. Now, is that, can you see how that might be part of your identity? What lifestyle do you long for? That may be because you find your identity there. So let me come back to those four core images that I mentioned before. First, I mentioned family, right? Are there certain expectations that your family puts on you to keep you from seeing your true self in God? Maybe it's your abilities, right? Do your abilities keep you, from, uh, keep you so focused on yourself that you might not, um, uh, you can't see the glory that God should receive because of your abilities? Your interests, Maybe you're finding your identity in, your, in an interest group that you don't, have, you don't even have time to spend, spend time in prayer with God. Or maybe, maybe it's your career, right? Maybe it's your career. It's so consuming that you think you can do everything on your own and you don't need God. But our true self is the self we see before God. And if we don't sit at his feet and see ourselves rightly before him as sinners at the mercy of a holy God, we will never know who we truly are. Maybe you're playing 3,000 different roles in your life because you haven't done that. It feels good, but you never know truly who you are. So if you want to know who you are first, you have to know the barriers. What's keeping you and keeping you from seeing yourself before God. And once you can do that, then you can move on to step two, which is to find the breakthrough. In other words, the barriers are the problem, but the breakthrough is the solution. And that's where the transformation and growth start to happen in our lives. Uh, Kathy Cook, uh, helpful again here, puts it this way. She says, transformation happens when we confront and reject our wrong or unhealthy beliefs, feelings, behaviors, attitudes, and actions, and accept healthy ones instead. So if you put that in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 19, very much outline wrong and unhealthy beliefs, feelings, behaviors, and attitudes. Verses 20 to 24 show us the gospel solution. Uh, But you have to first confront the barriers to find the breakthrough. Paul writes this in verse 20. He says, but this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So these two verses are key if you want to know who you are and find spiritual growth. Paul says, first, you got to remember what you were taught. Okay, Paul outlined this at the opening of the letter. If you're a Christian, you're what? You're in Christ. What does that mean? That means God chose you. He adopted you. He calls you beloved. He offers redemption through his blood. He lavished his grace on you. You have a new identity. This is who you are. Why in the world would you go try to find your identity in what the Gentiles are doing, is what Paul says here. Remember what you were taught. How do you find this breakthrough? Verse 22, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. 
Now, if you want to find breakthrough, he, he just simply says you got to put off, take off that old self. What is the old self? Well, it's actually an expression of community identity. All of us listening now, listening later on, we all were once fallen and once dead in our sins. But it also refers to the, uh, the, the sin that keeps lurking in our hearts. And so putting off the old self is a way of stripping away the influence of that sin in our lives. The old self is directly related to verses 17 to 19. Since you used to live that way, he says, putting off the old self is actually a constant process of repentance and putting our trust back in Jesus. And so in verse 20 to 22, Paul is balancing out the indicative and the imperatives of the Christian life. Pastor Dave writes about this in your workbook. In verses 20 to 21, that's the indicative. We have a new identity simply because of what Christ did for us. And then verse 22, that's the imperative. It's the command of how we should respond and we should live. So the reality is that just because you have a new identity in Christ, you still need to fight sin. We are simultaneously saints and sinners, Jesus' work on the cross has justified us. He's given us the ability to fight sin, but we need to fight. How do we do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 23. He says, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Now, Ephesians 4.23 is actually a pretty interesting verse. In the ESV, it doesn't capitalize spirit, which raises a natural question. Does the spirit refer to the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? And that's a fair question. Paul does reference the human spirit in other letters, but nowhere else does he speak about the human spirit as being renewed. And he never mentions the human spirit in Ephesians, and all the references are to the Holy Spirit. And so for those reasons, and actually if you look at the Greek uh, construction, it's best to understand this as being the Holy Spirit who's the agent of renewal in our minds as the object of that renewing work. So I actually use the, the NLT translation right here. I think it gets it right. And it's important because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps with the breakthrough process. In other words, the Holy Spirit plays a key role in sanctification. The Holy Spirit regenerates us washes us clean, illuminates our heart. He convicts us of sin. He is our counselor and our helper. In other words, he helps us to see clearly our new identity in Christ. Breakthroughs happen because of the Holy Spirit's work. And sometimes it may take years to become fully aware of what he's teaching us. Now, this actually reminds me of the story of a guy named Nabil Qureshi. Um, some of you might know him. He's, he became a well-known apologetic speaker um, a number of years ago, but he actually grew up in a really strong Muslim family who were really devoted to their faith. And so in this book, which is, a, which is tremendous, um, it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, uh, he, he talks about his Islamic faith and how there's such a strong connection to your family and a devotion to your teachers. And Nabil became convinced that Islam was the right religion and he would argue with Christians all the time about their faith. But then he went to college and he, he developed a strong friendship with a young man named David Wood. And for years they would discuss and they would debate Christianity and Islam. Um, and even though I think Nabil didn't know it at the time, the Holy Spirit was working on his heart and his mind, helping him to find his true identity. And so as these debates continued, doubts started to creep into Nabil's mind about Islam. But he kept resisting the pull to Christianity because he could not abandon his family or his faith 
that had been so ingrained in his life. In fact, he built his whole life upon it. And there's a point in the book where he, reads, he reaches a crisis of faith. He doesn't know if Islam is true anymore. And this is, what, this is what he writes. He says, I did not know who God was. I did not know what the world was. I did not know who I was. And I had no idea what to do. I was in a maelstorm, flailing for something to hold on to. And I made a final desperate effort to lay hold of the life I had always lived. I'm Muslim I've always seen the world as a Muslim. Now, do you sense his struggle? He didn't want to leave that old self behind. Right? Despite the evidence before him, despite the Spirit's work in his life, he fought it. There are things we have built our lives on that are just too difficult to let go of. Family abilities and certain, certain family systems, abilities, interests, career. There's just so many things that we build our life upon and the relationships that they mean, that it's so difficult to leave those old systems and things behind. In many ways, the old self is so powerful, it may feel like it owns us. And so putting off the old self, that's what brings breakthrough, but we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to help us. Put off the old, but put on the new self is what Paul says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The old self is built on enticement to created things. The new self is built upon God. To put on the new self means that we are bringing our lives into conformity with our new identity in Christ. Or if I I say it another way, our identity should match our actions. The new self is our new identity acquired through conversion. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is the story of our identity in the story of redemption. We were created in God's image. That image was broken at the fall. But in Christ, that image was remade into the likeness of the better Adam, the image of God himself, Jesus Christ. We were adopted into his family. And so putting on the new self means conforming our lives to Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 29. He says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. God knew us before we were born, and it's his call for us to be conformed to the image of his Son, to put on the new self and bring our lives into alignment with our new identity. Now, finding breakthrough in our identity requires just what I'm going to call a transfer of ownership. The old self no longer owns our desires. Jesus does, and he gives us that new identity. But the old self does not die easily. It wants to keep erecting barriers to living out this new identity. And in addition, we have an enemy, the devil, who has a vested interest in keeping that old self alive He doesn't want us to discover our true identity in Christ. Let me offer an illustration you might be able to relate to. It's kind of like going to the DMV. And that's an illustration maybe you've experienced recently. And and if you're listening right now and you work for the DMV, I'm not trying to hate, but the struggle is real. I just got to tell you. I recently took a friend to the DMV. I hadn't been in a while. They moved here from out of state and needed to transfer the car title to New Jersey. Okay, and so naturally, I found some spiritual significance in the encounter. So we have an old car title. We need a new car title. And the evil one is making it impossible to transfer the title. (laughs) 
If you haven't been to the DMV, it's, it's pretty difficult. It, it, and I just got to say, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you have to make an appointment three months in advance in some cases. Then they send you to an agency in another part of the states that's nowhere close to you. Then you finally get there, and even though you've made an appointment, you have to wait in line for at least an hour, and then you get up to the window, and they send you to at least three other windows because the first window couldn't help you in terms of what you needed to do. Then you get up to the right window, you got all your paperwork, and just when you think everything is done, you're about to have that magic moment and leave, they tell you there's one section of the application you didn't fill out correctly, they can't help you, and actually, you need to go to a completely different agency in another part of the state. Now, on behalf of my friend, I looked at the manager and I just simply said, listen, we have an old car title. We are really, really, really trying to transfer the ownership to a new car title. And it just seems like you are making this process as difficult as it could possibly be. It's almost like you don't want our money. And I've lived in New Jersey for 35 years. That can't possibly be true. This is what the old self does. It doesn't want you to transfer your ownership to Jesus, and it gets an assist from an enemy who tries to erect barriers to that transfer. Finding the breakthrough to your new identity in Christ, it requires time and effort. You have to break down the barriers and let the Holy Spirit transform your heart. Now, on page 73 of your workbook, you'll find an excellent exercise that will help you think through and meditate upon this transfer of ownership. Uh, There's two columns. You can write down your old identity and then your new identity markers. So take some time to fill that out this week or with your small groups and ask the question, how do you find your identity? Well, first, you got to know the barriers. Second, you have to find the breakthrough. But even after you found the breakthrough, you need to grow. That's where the last step comes in. you got to get in the body. Get in the body because in reality, you can't grow if you're not in community. In fact, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 to 3, Paul talks about this new humanity idea. And and, and there's very much a community transformation involved. Yes, we're called to grow um, and change. But as Americans, influenced by Western individualism, we often miss this larger picture. We need the body of Christ. And that's what the whole first half of Ephesians 4 is about. Other people can recognize gifts in you that you can't see in yourself. And other people in the context of relationship can speak deep truth into your life, both correction and affirmation. We need each other. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, I want you to look carefully at this verse, because Paul has just told us, remember, in context, to put off the old self, put on the new self, transfer the ownership to Jesus, now live that out in community. And what does that look like? Put away falsehood. And that means I can't hide behind the identity I've constructed for myself. I need to be open and honest about my struggles, my fears, my dreams, my sins. In other words, I can't lie. Otherwise, you won't grow And you'll be pulled back into that barrier lifestyle, verse 17 to 19. Second, he says, speak the truth with your neighbor. Don't just put away falsehood, but let people speak truth to you. We have to be humble enough to let other people who love us share what they see in us, the ugly parts and the beautiful parts. Now, if you haven't noticed, uh, human speech is a big problem in our culture. 
And I, I don't want to press into that for just a moment because I think speaking the truth to one another, yes, is crucial for growth, but I want to offer a few cautions. First, when you speak the truth, do it in love and not to shame the other person. Because I see some people who claim they want to speak the truth, but their intent is really to harm the other. So don't buy into the canceling of the moment. It actually keeps us from having honest conversations. Second, when you speak the truth, be humble enough to admit when you might be wrong yourself. And some of us are unwilling to hear another perspective. We are unwilling to hear another position. And in those cases, I would invite you to consider whether you really want to speak the truth or if you just want to be right. Because speaking the truth requires humility. And then finally, when there's disagreement, don't walk away from the relationship. See, I've watched so many people over the last few years in relationships and social media, they might say, they, they, they just start telling people they love, I'm done with you. Years of friendships, lost. Friends, that's the old self. My goodness, we need to learn to disagree better. The church, the body of Christ needs to know and show the world a better way. What does Ephesians 4.25 says? It says, we are members one of another. In other words, be committed to one another. You're part of the body of Christ. That means when things get difficult, don't leave. Don't run back to your former lifestyle. Stick with it. When you do, that's when growth occurs. Author Robert Bella, in his book, Habits of the Heart, says this, we never get to the bottom of ourselves on our own. We discover who we are face-to-face and side-by-side with others in love and learning. So let me just say this. I, I see a lot of people out there beating up on the church, but the church is the bride of Christ. People often say, the church isn't this, the church isn't that, the church didn't do this. But friends, the church is part of our identity, We are the called out ones, the ecclesia of God. Jesus says, I love the church. That's my bride. Stop beating up on the church. Commit to the church. Because in the context of community, in the body, that's where identities are fully formed. And what does that look like? Verse 26 to 29, Paul outlines what happens when people live out their identities in community. What does he say? He says, put off lies, put on the truth. Put off anger, put on peace. Put off stealing, put on generosity. Put off revenge, put on forgiveness. Put off promiscuity, put on self-control. Put off drunkenness, put on the spirit. Friends, you need to get in the body because you can't live out these characteristics on your own. These are the changes that result from the new identity being lived out in the church, in community. We have the opportunity to show the world what life looks like in the kingdom of God. We can actually catch a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, what will happen at the consummation of the story. And Paul teases this out in 4.30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we live out this new identity in Christ, you will not grieve the Holy Spirit. Instead, your life will show people something that's different. Now, that word sealed can be translated as marked. And the items I put on this table often have elements of identity to them. Some of them actually have markings. My, my diploma over here actually has my name marked on it. It represents a part of who I am. There's a, there's a marking to it. And when we talk about the new identity in Christ, there's a marking to it. 
Right? You're marked for the day of redemption. That mark shows you belong to Christ. What's the fruit of that marking? Verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, we live in a world that is dominated by the old self. There are people around us who live like the Gentiles. Can't you see it everywhere? Bitterness of spirit, wrath and anger towards our neighbors, slandering people who disagree with us. It sounds like my last scroll on Twitter in the nightly news last night. And sadly, even common fare in the church. But the new identity, lived out in community, it shows there's a better kingdom out there. One marked by kindness and tenderness and forgiveness. How do we do that? (laughs) You know who you are and whose you are. Growth in the Christian happens when we allow our new identity to shape our interaction with the areas that dominated our identity before, our family, our abilities, identity, career. They, come, they become subservient to our identity in Christ. Tim Keller says it helpfully this way. He says, you pursue a career now not to get a self and achieve self-worth. You do it to serve God and the common good. Your work is still part of your identity, as are your family and your nationality and so on, but they are all relieved of the terrible burden of being the ultimate source of yourself and your value. Why? Because you are in Christ. He has given you your ultimate identity. How do you find your identity? You know the barriers. You find the breakthrough. You get in the body. And then you can show the world a better kingdom and a better king to serve. As the worship team comes back on stage, um, let me just close by finishing the story of Nabil Qureshi. As I mentioned earlier, through his conversations with Christians who loved him and challenged him, Nabil's uh, faith in Islam began to waver, and he started to look into its validity himself, things he hadn't done before. And over and over again, he was forced to admit that Christianity had evidence that it was true, and there were problems with Islam that he never considered before. But Nabil knew that converting to Christianity would mean the loss of his family and lifelong friends. He would indeed be forging a new identity. And so one day he writes in a a large Muslim prayer hall, he says, I cried out to God with this prayer. He He said, please, God Almighty, tell me who you are. I beseech you and you only. Only you can rescue me. At your feet, I lay down everything I've learned and I give my entire life to you. Take away what you will, be it joy, my friends, my family, even my life. But let me have you, O God. Now, despite this prayer, Nabil continued to resist. The old self does not die without a fight. And so he asked God for a vision to confirm the truth. And God gave him a vision of a field of crosses. And then he asked God to reveal himself in a dream. And God did it not once, but three times. Nabil counted the cost of following Jesus. And on August 24th, 2005, after years of resisting, he could deny it no more. He got down on his knees at 3 a.m. in the morning and he prayed this prayer. He said, I submit. 
I submit that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. He came to this world to die for my sins, proving his lordship by rising from the dead. I am a sinner, and I need him for redemption. Christ, I accept you into my life. And at that moment, a transfer of ownership occurred. That Nabil's new identity was forged. As Nabil put it, he was seeking Allah, but he found Jesus. And in the final chapter of the book, he describes his raw emotions when his parents found out about his conversion. They were devastated. They couldn't talk to him. And Nabil said, I cried out. I said, why, God? Why would you put me and my family through this? And it's in that moment he said, I sense God just simply saying, this is not about you. And Nabil just sat there, frozen, with his mouth open, taking it in. And then he wrote these words that just caught my attention. He said, God was rebooting me. God was rebooting everything I knew about myself. He was giving me a new identity, and it changed everything. Nabil gave the rest of his life to living out this new identity in Christ. He shared the gospel with thousands. His book has sold over 500,000 copies. Many have given their lives to Christ through his ministry. Now, tragically, he passed away a few years ago at age 34 of cancer. Um, but it's so sad, and it's sad because he had so much to offer. But it's also amazing that God took just a short time to use him so greatly. And it's all because he discovered his new identity. He leaned into it, an identity that provided hope for the future, even in the face of death. As Paul wrote, Nabil was sealed. He was marked for that final day of redemption. And so friends, I would just say like Nabil Qureshi, ask yourselves, where are the identity markers that are more important than Jesus in your life? Bring them into conformity of this new identity. Break those barriers. And remember the words that Jesus said himself. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Church, you have to know who you are and whose you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for what it teaches us, Lord, for what it teaches us about who we are and who you are. Help us today to see ourselves rightly before you. Help us to know the barriers that are keeping us from pressing in to our identity in you, Lord Jesus. Give us the breakthrough, Holy Spirit. Renew our minds. Use the church for your glory, Lord. Help us to be humble and tender and forgiving. We pray all that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.